Welcome to Subculture. This is a podcast about the many unique, varied, and sometimes little-known groups that people find themselves relating to in our society. In today's world, everything runs on culture. Who you are, what you believe in, what you think about yourself, and the way we relate to the world is all defined by the choices we make and the people we choose to spend time with. How do we decide where we belong? Have you ever thought about changing who you are? Have you ever thought about joining a club, a group, a gang, or a clique? What makes us who we are? What makes us decide where to fit in? That's what this podcast will explore. Every week, I will interview an individual from a different subculture and try to get at the thing that makes them tick. My name's Chris Harper. Welcome to another episode of Subculture. Today, I'm here with Caitlin Bailey. Caitlin's an advocate, comedian, podcaster, and seems like a lot of things. (laughs) How are you, Caitlin? (laughs) I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to start with the basics with everybody. Just tell me like who you are, you know, your name, sure. from, your age if you want to, um, where you live. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so my name is Caitlin Bailey. I'm the host of the Oldest Profession podcast, founder and executive director of Old Pros, which is a nonprofit media organization focused on changing the status of sex workers in society. Um, I live in New York. I'm 36. I'm married. Uh, I'm an only child. Grew up in a military family. And I spent um, about a decade as a stand-up comic before getting into sex worker rights advocacy. Oh, that's interesting. So you, you, you grew up in a military family. Did you move around a lot when you were a kid? We did. We moved every two years for the first 10. Do you think that maybe that's why you became a comedian? Like, did you have to like be funny or, you know, whatever when you were a kid? Maybe a lot more has to go wrong, I think, to motivate (laughs) somebody to get into comedy. But but moving was was part of it. I think the moving on top of being an only child, it was like a little bit growing up in an echo chamber of crazy, you know, but yeah, um, but it was great. It was also very cool to see um, a lot of the world as a young person, you know, of course. get a lot of, yeah. 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 Where's the favorite, where's your favorite place? Where, where's the favorite place you lived? Um, you know, I really liked, uh, we, my father, after my father retired, we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, which is where my mom still lives and where I grew up and, you know, where I, I sort of think of as home. Um, it was really fun to grow up in Germany, but um, I, you know, I always sort of felt like an outsider there, you know, we lived on military bases. And so, you know, we never got uh, into the culture, which I think is a pretty, pretty common experience, spending more time at the PX, right, than the, the local bakery. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. You like the South? You like the South? Um, I do. I mean, I don't live there anymore. And that's a, yeah. you know, that's an on on purpose choice. I love New York City. Um, I love living here. Yeah, my husband and I are actually both from Raleigh, North Carolina. We met we met in high school. I'm not too far from there. I live in Charleston, South Carolina. So that's why that's I'm where asking. I went to college. No college way, Charleston. Yeah, no, you did it. yeah, I did. I'm a cougar. That's no way. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> oh, right on. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I love Charleston. To, I went to the College of Charleston briefly, and then I got like um, the dean said just 
don't come back here. Oh. <laughs> Spent too much time drinking or what? Yeah, it was a little. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, Charleston's I get a, it. I'm a lot older than you, but, you know, <laughs> Charleston's always been known for like party college. <laughs> oh, for sure. I think one of the stories about the College of Charleston is that the first casualties of the Civil War were some undergrads that like paddle boated their way out to. Try Fort Sumter or something, and then just never returned. We don't know if they drowned or fell into the ocean or got. We have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> this was back in the '90s for me, and I was like, oh, long nice. hair. I had long hair and a Harley, and I was mm, too, mm-hmm. too cool for school. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, I graduated class of 2009. So yeah, yeah right on. So yeah. you know Charleston pretty well, then. I do. I do. Yeah, I spent the the full four years there. History maker. We, uh, we just had the worst weather weekend uh, like ever. It was so bad. Like it was cold and rain in Saturday and Sunday. And then today it's like the Charleston schizophrenic weather. It's like the most yeah. beautiful day outside right now you've ever seen. Yep. <laughs> yep. I know it well. Those powerful thunderstorms, right? I'll try I'll have to figure out a way to come back, maybe for the Piccolo's Palito Festival or, you know, have to talk to some theaters, figure out a way to come down, visit the old alma mater. So that that's one of my questions I always ask people is like your education background, I guess the College of Charleston. Sure. Did you do anything beyond that or was that it? I didn't. No, I graduated with my, my undergraduate uh, in, in history where I was actually studying. Uh, my senior thesis was on the economic structure of brothels in Charleston between 1890 oh. and 1920. Um, right. So it's a lot of the material that I cover now um, was an obsession of mine way, way back from my undergraduate days. So you, so you got into like this, uh, so you got into like learning about sex worker history pretty young then, early. Oh yeah. What got you you down that rabbit hole? Like how did you start? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, sex, I'm biased, right? Um, I, I think sex workers are some of the most interesting people, um, in history. And that was certainly my sense, you know, reading, I was always a reader, right. As a, you know, sort of a, an only child. Um, I always had a book on the playground, that kind of thing. Um, and so sex workers just always felt like they had this like cheat code to the limitations of femininity, right? Like long before women had the right to vote, long before women had the the right to hold their own credit cards or move freely throughout society. It was, you know, sex workers who were performing on stages and taking lovers and influencing world history. And that was, you know, yeah. absolutely my sense as a young person. Um, I experimented with sex work as a young person as well before before I went to college. And right. so I had that lived experience, which also really informed my studies, right? I knew sort of the mechanics um, of what was involved in, you know, scheduling and screening a date, uh, in figuring out how to, you know, build that kind of negotiated consent without a lot of uh, pre-existing trust, right? So you know, their technology changes, but the fundamentals of the oldest profession don't. And so when I was going into the archives, I was finding things that um, other historians had had really overlooked, um, which was very exciting to me as a young person. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah. you go so you go to college at College of Charleston and you start mm-hmm. working on becoming a history major? Yes, a history major um, with a, a minor in theater and a brief a brief, brief flirtation with political science. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> and so how do you how does a historian in um, in with a with a focus on sex work end up becoming like a podcaster and a comedian and 
Well, you know, I, I graduated uh, in 2009. So in the depth of sort of the financial crisis, right, where there was a, a real freeze um, on, on hiring entry level folks. Um, and I started working for campaigns right away. And so that took me all over the country. I was in Pennsylvania and Indiana and California and New York um, running these sort of field campaigns for different progressive organizations, which was you right. know, fundraising and talking to the electorate, right, about why it was so important to, to get involved. I burned yeah. out on that pretty quickly. It's a grueling, um, you know, campaigns are, are just a grueling Do people nightmare. listen? <laughs> Uh, on the margins, right? You know, but I, I got the overwhelming sense that, you know, I was expending like the whole of my human energy to have a, a minor influence on, you know, a tenth of a percentage point in a contested region, which was not how I wanted to spend my life. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, in the it, it was in the depths of nihilism that um, I decided that I would be better off pursuing stand-up comedy than I would be going to law school, which was the alternative. So instead of studying for the LSAT, I started doing open mics and frankly got addicted to stand-up comedy. And that yeah. passion uh, brought me to New York, you know, to, to study this craft with some of the best uh, comics in the world. And I, I got back into sex work uh, because Starbucks had not unionized yet. And it was very difficult to find uh, sustainable work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I started the Oldest Profession podcast, uh, finally using my degree. Um, and it was in, it was after I had started that show and I was starting to, you know, sort of exercise my my passion for for making this history that I'd long been obsessed with more accessible to more people that yeah. Donald Trump signed SESTA FOSTA into law. And so that was a federal bill. Um, you might remember it. Amy Schumer was like a big spokesperson for it. It stands for Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking and Fight Online Sex Trafficking. This okay. is when like Backpage was seized by the FBI. Craigslist Erotic Services yeah. went away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was like a massive... Yeah. Oh, yeah. So all of the places that sex workers had been using to schedule and screen our clients, right, to do harm reduction, to engage in this very old thing, went yeah. away overnight. And I saw the impact of that, right? And we did not rescue a single victim of human trafficking. No. What we did was push this thing further underground. And so that really activated me. And, and this was something that I'd long been studying, right? It, it's been uh, frankly, a, a lifelong obsession of mine, but I felt the urgency behind trying to explain to a, a new generation why trying to repress uh, prostitution, right, inevitably led to making it harder uh, for women to fully engage in public spaces, uh, which has been something that's played out. Why do you think the tendency in the United States is to press uh, sex workers into like just operating into the shadows? What, what, I mean, what's the, where's that coming from? Is that the religious right or what is that? Yeah, I think that the, the demonization of whores is absolutely um, a remnant of the Abrahamic religions, right? That's, that's something you see um, from the, the earliest phases of Christianity, you know, yeah. sort of our, uh, the, the, the Catholic church even setting itself up as, you know, we were repressing heretics and like before that meant Protestants, right? It meant witches, yeah, right? So we right. were these sort of old fertility um, temples and places where uh, sex workers or just you know, like women 
um, had a lot more social power. Um, And so I think that's the, the old history here in the U.S., it's also uh, the you know criminalization of prostitution also has a lot to do with our history of, of xenophobia and racism. And yeah. I think that you can see that really clearly in the language of like the white slave law from 1910, which was this kind of like moral panic or like the QAnon of its day, oh, um, wow. passing all of these federal laws, right, to shut down brothels and make it hard for women to you know, transport themselves across state lines for, quote, immoral purposes. And much like the anti-trafficking laws today, these laws were passed um, under the guise of protecting women, right, from a state worse than death, but were in fact used to limit uh, women's ability to participate, um, you know, in the economy, to move freely in public spaces, um, we criminalized promiscuity in this country, starting uh, with World War I in 1917. And yeah. those laws remained on the books and, in effect, into the 1970s. So I yeah. think understanding this history of, like, we say we're doing one thing when we are, in fact, doing another, um, just to throw one more factoid out there, uh, in the U.S., our first, anti, our first federal anti-prostitution law is also our first anti-immigration law. It's the Page Act of 1875, which predates uh, the more explicitly named Chinese exclusion law, but makes it a crime for, you know, Chinese or the racist term that the Mongolian women, right, quote, uh, made it a crime to uh, for them to immigrate to this country for, quote, immoral purposes. It's the same right. language you see repeated a few decades later with the with the white slave law. So, um, you know, in the in Europe, it's always been about, you know, repressing women. And here in the U.S., we have that and this added flavor um, of xenophobia and racism. Yeah. I would hate to be on the um, counter argument side with you because your grasp of history is pretty good. Like you. This is what I have the obsessive mind of a comedian yeah, and then I, I got activated. On the, yeah. <laughs> Oh, wow. I, mean, I, I hope that's a compliment. I, I just it is a compliment. Yeah, like, no, I mean, you're just, you know, you're a very great <laughs> woman. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, <laughs> I, um, I just learned recently because I, I was one of those kids that, you know, adults would always say things like, oh, you'd make a great lawyer. Uh, which it's only in retrospect, right? Yeah, yeah, it's only in retrospect that I'm like, oh, they were calling me um, an asshole. Uh, that's not. That's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I have a long history of cornering people at parties with this stuff. Uh, sometimes consensually, often, uh, <laughs> often not. <laughs> for anybody listening that may not, can we define sex work? Absolutely. Yeah. Sex work is what falls into the bucket of sex work from your your perspective. Sex work is a really broad umbrella term that means any kind of erotic labor. Right. So, of course, this means, you know, full service prostitution. This also means strippers, dominatrixes, uh, you know, phone sex operators, uh, people creating um, online content. Right. Porn performers or, you know, only fans. Folks, yeah. so yeah, it's a, and and people of all genders do this work. It's always been all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. Um, I'm trying to build a big tent, so I want to include you know like Hooters waitresses yeah. um, and other folks that that use erotic labor as a as a part of their job. 
Can we um, put Hooters waitresses in the sex worker bucket? Is that like, I mean, I mean, that's sort that? of up to the Hooters waitress you ask, right? You know, it's, sure. it sort of depends. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, right. But yeah. And, um, you know, sex work as a broad umbrella term includes both criminalized and legal forms of prostitution, right? You have yeah. legal strip clubs, you have criminalized, unlicensed strip clubs, right? You have legal, um, you know, uh, people engaging in prostitution in Nevada. You have a much larger population of people engaging in criminalized full service uh, work, you know, across the socioeconomic spectrum, right? You've got folks operating, um, really, you know, doing sort of survival sex work um, where you may be exchanging money. You're also likely to be exchanging food or shelter. Um, yeah. And you have folks that, you know, are operating at the level of a, you know, sommelier or executive chef, right? Exchanging yeah. um, experiences, which can also be um, a very broad term for, for different lengths of time. Sex work itself um, was coined in the 1980s by one of my heroes, Carol Lee, um, okay. who is a member of one of the first sex worker rights organizations called Coyote, Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, which was founded in the 1970s. Um, and she, yeah, she coined the phrase in order to highlight the labor rights element of sex work and okay. also to create a broad enough category that deals with, you know, all erotic laborers who, regardless of the specifics, right, of the work that we engage in, are all facing the same sexual stigma around the right. work that we do. Right. Yeah. And there's some nuances to it all too. Like there's sex workers, like pros- people in prostitution that are working for themselves and then mm-hmm. sex workers that have like somebody controlling them, like a pimp sure. or a, you know, something like yeah. that. Yeah. All labor exists on the spectrum of choice, circumstance, and coercion. And that's yeah. as true for sex work as it is for domestic labor, folks that work in textiles or mines or agriculture, you know, so you absolutely have examples of violence and exploitation in this work. Um, yeah. It's just not, you know, you also have examples of violence and exploitation in uh, food and bev. So <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and we're not going to help victims of violence by criminalizing their labor. And that's something that we've seen over and over again is that the more you try to repress prostitution, uh, the more violent uh you make this work. So very similar to the abortion issue, you're never going to eradicate the oldest profession, but you can make it more dangerous. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. What yeah. what do you um so uh, what 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 got you to become an advocate like how did you start <laughs> that path yeah, your, I, mean, I was um yeah I I I really was activated by the passage and immediate consequences of that devastating federal law in 2018 right watching the consequences of you know the places that my peers and I had been using to keep ourselves safe, exchange information with one another. I really felt like I saw the the writing on the wall, um, and so I, uh, you know, I, I was doing the podcast. I started going to sex worker rights conferences um, and connecting to this older generation of advocates. And I actually became the founding director of communications for a national advocacy organization that was pursuing a a state-by-state strategy to try to get these laws um, overturned. Um, They're an organization that does really incredible work, but um, after a few years of of talking to state legislatures, uh, excuse me, state legislators, 
um, it became clear that we are not going to change laws on this issue until we really invest in changing the the story or the cultural narrative around this work. And that's I mean, what my organization does. Yeah, it seems yeah. like from uh, like from anybody in like the pol- the the world of politics, like this topic would be like toxic waste, you know, like <laughs> which is it, it's, it's so. I, I I absolutely understand why you would think that, and it's something yeah. you know that fear is shared by legislators right. all over the country sure. that are terrified of their own constituents on this issue. But when you actually look at the polling, forty four percent of the American electorate is ready to end the criminalization of consensual adult sex work. You know, it's something that you can explain to people across the ideological spectrum why yeah. arresting consensual adults for doing consensual adult things with one another is wrong and leads to bad outcomes. And that's so probably it's, 40, it's, 44% of the people that are willing to say it publicly. Right. <laughs> you know, they're well, they're willing to answer more. answer a poll a pollster's question on the topic for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. What about in other countries? I mean, you know, this is a, mm-hmm. something that's all over the world. Like, uh, you Absolutely. Know, do you have any perspective on like uh, sexual yeah, New, New Zealand decriminalized prostitution in 2000, uh, 2003 and has had really incredible results with just you know plummeting rates of STIs and violence against women. Um, Rhode Island actually decriminalized indoor prostitution from 2003 to 2009 um, and reduced gonorrhea rates by wow. almost 40%. And yeah. reduced reported rapes by thirty percent. So some really dramatic results. I was going to ask you about like sexual violence and prostitution yes. and sex work. Is that that's a is that I mean there's I'm sure. an inverse correlation, absolutely. And I think part of that is making it easier. You know, sex workers are some of the. Um, you know, we are often victims of sexual violence and domestic violence. So raising our negotiating power really right. makes, you know, uh, communities safer for, for everyone. How, how does it make it safer? Can you explain like the- Yeah. Event? So example, like uh, Craigslist Erotic Services, right? So Craigslist Erotic Services made it possible for sex workers and clients to discreetly connect with one another with okay. no barrier to entry, right? You don't have to show your ID. You don't even have to, you know, sort of take okay. out an ad. This okay. eliminates the need for a potentially abusive third party, right? So like a pimp or a manager, sure. right? who, by the way, are a figure um, invented by the criminalization of sex work. Before criminalization, the overwhelming majority of prostitution takes place in women-run and often-owned brothels, right? So I was actually character. kind of curious about that. Like, is that yeah. really a thing? Like, I mean, I mean, it's like yeah. movies and TV. You know, it's always like yeah. No, the reason the reason that men. Yeah, yeah. The, the the reason that men sort of enter this economy, I mean, obviously there have always been like gay male hustlers and people of all genders engaging in this work, but the, the sure. role of the pimp, right, is yeah. the direct result of criminalization. Because once you close the brothels, once you criminalize promiscuity in this country, you make it impossible for sex workers to procure clients in public spaces yeah. without risking arrest. So what right. pimps are preventing, right, is they are uh, they're protecting sex workers, not from other violent clients, but from the police, right, who have always been our number one predator 
right? right. So, uh, yeah, so that's when you need a man to navigate public spaces because they aren't going to be arrested for promiscuity. They aren't going to be subjected to, you know, these lock hospitals or venereal disease tests or any any of the number of other ways that we've tried to coercively control uh, the movement of sex workers. You know, when you think about like pimps and like even from like movie culture and all that stuff, you see, sure. you think back to like maybe it's like the 70s, like pre internet, you know, like when sure, yeah, like sex workers would have to go stand out on a street corner and like you right. know, work the work the corner, right? Mm-hmm. That all changed when like the internet came around. When the right? internet, right, allowed mm-hmm. sex workers to directly connect, right? Yeah. So you no longer have this need for that for that person. Right. There's like websites yeah. and whatnot and you can get. Yeah. On yeah. And so they took, took that out of the equation entirely almost. Yeah. And so what happens is, you know, we, often, you know, what we think of as trafficking or, you know, violence and exploitation in this work, it yeah. looks a lot more like domestic violence than other forms of labor trafficking. Right. And so right. when you remove barriers. Right. So women have historically used sex work to escape an abusive relationship, right? Because it is, you know, low barrier, easy. I mean, we shouldn't call it easy work because it is absolutely not, but low barrier to entry to get your survival needs met outside of the, you know, abusive domestic relationship that you might find yourself in. So sex work, rather than being a route to domestic violence, is often an escape latch uh, for, for desperate women. Yeah, no, that's a really uh, interesting point, actually. And I can see there would probably be a lot of truth to what you're saying there, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you hear about like, um, you know, and this is just my, just stuff like you hear online or in the news, like mm-hmm. about like, like the, these Asian like massage parlors sure. where they traffic women across state lines and, you know, indentured servitude and all these kind of things. Is that real? Is that kind of made up? Do you? It's it's absolutely a a misguided moral panic, right? So these are sort of echoes of the white slave narrative. These are echoes of that sort of um, initial like anti-Chinese xenophobic fears, right? Right. Um, Right. Again, right. our first anti-prostitution law, also our first anti-immigration law, who does it target? Asian women. So Asian women have been cast, right, as this, um, you know, particular tragic figure in the public imagination. But if you look at you know, for example, um, the Robert Kraft case that happened in South Florida, right, where you had the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and five local law enforcement agencies all surveilling these Asian-owned massage parlors, right, for right. months and months and months, right, um, reporting what I can only imagine was like the world's most boring porn, right. Um, <laughs> And so they, you know, they put together this whole sting operation and they threw themselves this press conference, right? Lauding themselves as heroes for having rescued sex slaves from sex slavery. But um, if you look at what actually happened next, uh, the only people who were charged uh, with crimes were the women that they had supposedly rescued, right, in this situation. Um, And if you look, the evidence that they had that these women were trafficked and being held against their will was stuff like 
there was food in the fridge <laughs> and they were staying at apartments that the massage parlor had arranged, which right. is very common in immigrant owned establishments. That's true whether you're talking about a massage parlor or a nail salon or a Chinese <laughs> restaurant or any of these other, you know, sort of like micro economies that target, you know, uh, you know, immigrants from your country, right? Though these are folks who need help securing housing. These are folks who need help securing all of this other stuff. So rather than being framed as a service that they were providing to their employees, which it was, this gets framed as evidence of coercive control. And what is the state's solution to this problem? Well, they're going to put these women helpfully in uh, apartments that are owned by, that are surveilled by the police, right? And limit their movement and take their phones away and charge them with crimes. That's that's what we're going to do to, to help these poor women who find themselves in this terrible circumstance. Yeah. I mean, people, so you know, like, like, <laughs> right. I mean, like people never really want to read between the lines and like look deeper. Right, of course. It. It's just like the headline of things. Like, and My favorite detail about this particular case. And, and, and look, the only reason we know so much about this case is because, you know, Robert Kraft was one of the many men who was sort of publicly right. humiliated as part of this right. campaign. And he's a very famous guy. But right. this is what so-called anti-trafficking stings actually look like. And it's very, very common that they're presented to communities as this glorious, heroic thing when all that's happening is state police are bullying right, immigrant-owned businesses and people, uh, often legally licensed monsieurs, who are giving um, aggressively consensual hand jobs to some of their clients. And so if you look at, and this is a a hilarious detail from the case. So RubMaps is a site that can be used to help people find uh, folks that are providing sexual services, right? So that that you're not traumatizing some poor monsieur, right? Who's not actually (laughs) offering that service, right? Right. Don't do that to people. (laughs) And so what's so funny to me is that if you look at the ratings of the places that were rated, um, there's a lot of complaints of gentlemen who went into these massage parlors looking for sexual services who were unable to negotiate that with the particular masseuse that they were with, which means these were not brothels. These were not places where management is coercively forcing their workers to provide sexual services. Right. This There's is a place where like, legally right. licensed masseurs were sometimes, right. when they felt like it, offering extras. And right. that is right. just, dare I suggest, not a concern of the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> I think any reasonable thinking person would agree with you. Right, right. That's <laughs> You know, something that just popped in my head and you were just talking about uh, Robert Kraft, you know, it's just like, it's also the public humiliation of people who indulge in these services, you know, um, all of us have seen, you know, living in the South where I live, I've seen a million times in the local news where they got plastered, you know, all these guys that got picked up over here on, uh, you know, some hotel in North Charleston where they were engaging in, you know, prostitution with somebody they met online and all of a sudden, you know, they got jumped by the Charleston County Police Department. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's ridiculous to me, especially when, uh, you know, different law enforcement departments across the country 
claim that they just can't do anything about the actual rape that is actually happening in so many of our communities. Instead, we have law enforcement officers LARPing, right, as sex workers or potential clients trying to entrap people in, again, an aggressively consensual, negotiated consent situation. And this ongoing conflation with sex work and the horrible crime of human trafficking or rape is really the root of so many bad laws and policies that have had a detrimental um, impact on all of our communities. Yeah. Aside from your podcast, do you have like a like a show that you do in New York? Is that right? I do. Yeah, Can you tell I, me about I it and like what that's all about. And yeah, so it's called um, it's called Whore's Eye View, um, and it <laughs> yeah. is uh, equal parts stand up comedy, history lecture, and very personal storytelling. And it is okay. a mad dash through ten thousand years of history from a sex worker's perspective. <laughs> How yeah. long is the show? What is it? What's the length of the show? Yeah, the show is seventy-five minutes. Um, 75 and minutes. so I've uh, it's in development right now. I just came back from the Sex Worker Arts Festival in San Francisco. Oh. I'm taking the show to DC um, in June and Philadelphia in September. Um, I hope to be coming to a city near you. I'd love to bring the show to Charleston. You got um, to come to Charleston. Yeah. We got to come to Charleston. Yeah, my <laughs> yeah. my. To show show my history professors what I did with their uh, with their degree. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and so and you can get more information about you know tours at whoresiview.com. Charleston's a very progressive city for being in the south. Oh, yeah. and, you know, there's a lot of venues here where you could probably pull that off. The Satilli oh, Theater yeah. right there, the College of Charleston. You should do it. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> I have to, I, have to, I gotta reach out, gotta reach out to the theater department, some old friends. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. You just said something about Sex Workers Arts Festival in San Francisco. What is mm-hmm. that? So this is a, a an arts festival that's been um, going on since the 1990s. It was okay. started by Carol Lee, the woman who coined the phrase sex work. And it's a, okay. a film and arts festival highlighting um sex worker artists of you know really all kinds but with oh, a special focus on filmmakers oh interesting nice yeah. how was it what was what was your experience? oh it was great it was th- this was the first year uh that the the festival has been happening without its founder um we lost carol lee last year um oh. but my organization actually produced um her memorial documentary um and mm-hmm. we had that in uh, addition to a couple of other films that we've produced over the years in the festival and I had an opportunity to present my one woman show to many of my heroes and comrades in this right. in this movement, which was a, yeah. a very special experience. Yeah. How did that go for you? You feel like you're dialed in? <laughs> yeah, really well. We filmed it, which was amazing. And so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the footage and um, I'm really looking forward to to taking the show um, all over the country and and hopefully all over the world. Nice, Caitlin. That's really awesome. Yeah, yeah. Good thanks. For you. I'm, I'm, I'm really <laughs> proud of the the org, you know, the organization that we've built at Old Pros and and Whore's Eye View in particular. I think it's a a very powerful piece of theater, and I hope to get it in front of as many people as possible. 
Yeah, that's very interesting and cool. What got you um, going on stand-up comedy? Like, how did you decide? How did you oh. learn? That you, how did you? How did you figure out I'm funny enough to stand up in front of a room full of people and talk? Yeah, I think before <laughs> I before I was confident I was funny, I was uh, I was weird, right? I think that's something that um, unites a lot of us performer types uh, across across art forms. Yeah, um, and so I was, you know, I was a pretty creepy kid. I was like an off-putting child writing death poetry in elementary school and, you know, frightening my guidance counselors and alienating my peers. But I've never been afraid of public speaking. You know, I was an actress before I did politics, um, before I did stand-up. And I I think it was really recognizing that, um, you know, if you can make people laugh, you can make people listen. And I think unlike a lot of stand-up comics, the um, the comedy has always been a means to an end. You know, I think many purists in stand-up comedy, right? Funny first guys, they make, uh, you know, laughter is their, is their whole business. And for me, you know, I spent a decade in that community and have a lot of respect for, you know, the hustle and the grind of, of comedy club culture. But ultimately, I am hoping to change people's minds. Mm-hmm. And comedy is just an infinitely more effective tactic at doing that than uh, lecturing people or bombarding them with statistics or any of the other things that we do uh, in the, in the political world. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I mean, any Mm -hmm. like public speaking forum, if you're not really, really interesting or really, really funny, if you talk for more than like five minutes, nobody's listening anymore anyway. Yeah, they can't. It's hard, right? We all have trauma from school. You know, it's, yeah, it's a big ask. They're certainly not going to pay for the privilege. Right. Yeah. <laughs> how do you write your, how do you write your content for your stand-up shows? Like, how do you come up? Oh, with great that? question. Yeah. Um. So I, I, I was so spoiled as a, as a stand-up comic because it's um writing with immediate gratification right yeah uh so you you get to uh, so i i very i loved writing on stage it was my favorite place to you know incubate um incubate and experiment with with ideas but when the pandemic um when the pandemic happened i was sort of forced back to words on a page you know having um lost that uh you know immediate connection to a live audience and so Whore's Eye View is, is very much a combination of, you know, things that have been written, um, you know, or sort of sitting at my desk thinking through uh, what it is I, I want to communicate and lines that were that were crafted um, in front of in front of live audiences. So Are you a been, writer? Do you write a lot? I, I am. Yes. Yeah. I, I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And my, my preference is to do it, you know, sort of raw and live and then transcribe that and optimize and, and, and sort of try it again back and forth. But, um, but the pandemic just forced a lot, a lot more time in front of the computer. Um, um, but now I have the opportunity to, to finish it um, in front of a live audience where there's always new ideas um, <laughs> cropping, cropping up, which is great. I uh, I recently asked um, uh, Chat GPT AI to write me a stand up comedy routine. Just I was playing. Oh, right how'd there. that go? It was actually kind of funny. <laughs> oh, that's terrifying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I saw a tweet the other day. I wish I could credit the author. It was not. It was not me. Um, who summed up my feelings on the whole thing, which is uh, 
you know, the future that I was envisioning was not, um, you know, a bunch of people doing menial labor at minimum wage while the robots, you know, painted and did, you know, pursued artistic um, fields. That's not that's not the what we were hoping for. <laughs> it wrote something like, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How's everybody doing tonight? Don't oh, answer that. I can't hear you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, very funny. Oh, that's cute. A self-aware robot. Great. I mean, really, uh, it's kind of scary. It's not the thing horror Yeah, it's terrifying. Okay, yeah, so it's, that, it's, that, yeah. that leads me to some interesting questions for you. Like, <laughs> Where do you see like uh, AI, virtual reality, mm-hmm going into like the sex world. I mean, I feel like that's got to be like a thing that's going to happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, sex workers have been at the forefront of every major technological (laughs) innovation for all of human history, right? We are in it in terms of artistic communities, uh, financial innovation, our need to always stay one step ahead of the law. So I know a lot of, you know, smart, well-connected sex workers that are doing exciting things on the blockchain, right, that are building sort of virtual worlds, um, that are that are innovating in that in that space. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of. I mean, I I am not one of those. I'm really into blockchain technology. I mean, like I'm, I, you know, that's, that's yeah, that's uh, that's cool. There there are people for you. I I am not that person. I am uh, <laughs> natu- naturally a luddite. That is my. Uh, that's how I'm wired and came into the world. But there there are sex workers who are doing really exciting things on the cutting edge of technology. And are using, uh, you know, AI or other forms to to sort of optimize their own business strategies, right? Like OnlyFans, who are using AI chat to to scale, right. whether or not sex workers, uh, you know, along with creatives, um, can be replaced in any meaningful way. I have my doubts about. There's just something about the intimacy of a one-to-one human connection that I believe sort of transcends what technology is, is capable of by definition, whether or not AI starts doing a hell of an impression uh, of a really good sex worker. I think the jury is still out. Um, You know, I, I would have told you that writers, for example, would be some of the last people replaced by AI. So it's, you know, I don't have my finger on the pulse of (laughs) what we're doing. Um, But I will say that I think there will always be a market for in-person, human, one-to-one erotic services. And that uh, is never going away. No, I don't think, I I, I would tend to agree with you 100%. What do you think, from my perspective, like the evolution of sex work in today's time, it's like, Sugar babies. Um, sure. Um, the other thing is, which is a new word for an old thing. We used to call that patronage. <laughs> okay. You would care to elaborate on that at all? Sure. I mean, every you know major artist for all of human history has had benefactors, right, and people that believe in their work. So you know, sugar. Uh, I've done sugaring and I've done hourly uh, hourly sex work, and they are. Okay different and they are also fundamentally the same.
care to elaborate on that? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember, so, you know, we're, we're working as an hourly sex worker, right? You were paid by the hour being, um, negotiating, uh, you know, a sugaring arrangement. I settled, um, on being paid by the month, but it's all okay. kind of, um, affected or performative, um, you know, ego stuff, right. Where you're, you know, sort of reflecting back to your client, what it is they want to, to see and hear, which is, also something that artists do with their benefactors, right? With the philanthropists that support their work. So, you know, the the patronage, right, of somebody really believing in an artist and the patronage of somebody really wanting the narcissistic the narcissistic supply of um, a young, attractive woman. Right. These are, there's a lot of similarities there. There's no real innovation is sort of my, my okay. takeaway. And yeah. then the other thing is the only fan, the rise of OnlyFans, which seems to have yes. like kind of evolved during the pandemic, right? Like, I mean, you know, you go on Instagram, every yeah. third person. Yeah, technology. Yeah, technology really does change, and I think what's so exciting about the OnlyFans model is it allows, um, you know, creators to connect directly to their clients, right? So you are not beholden to porn companies. You're not beholden to distributors. Yeah. Um, and it's a real boon, I think, for independent content creators. Now, right. that is complicated by federal laws that make it um, harder for you know payment processors, for example, and erotic content to go together, makes it harder uh, when you're doing... Um, you know, when you uh, disrupt private communication, um, again, you know, sort of punishing um, platforms for uh, providing a space for erotic content creators to connect with their clients. So that sort of forces everyone back into the hands of these large distributors, right? Like we don't, nobody wants to be working for Pornhub, right? That's a, a place that's been uh, sort of notoriously, uh, you know, stealing people's content and, and making it more available. We'd much prefer a one-to-one oh, -one relationship where our, our clients are supporting us directly, right. um, which is something that OnlyFans makes possible. So I think it's both an exciting time and also a really scary time to be an erotic content creator. Um, you know, we've the the possibility um, the, the surveillance possibilities that we have are really terrifying. Something that I'm starting to see is friends of mine um, who are legal sex workers, right? Creating erotic content is not a crime. Uh, you're just allowed to masturbate in your own bedroom still. Um, but their uh, facial recognition technology is connecting them um, at the border. So when they're coming home from vacation or trying to travel outside of the country, they're being flagged as a known sex worker and subjected really? to questioning around that. Absolutely. Is that a real very, thing? Like that's real. That's like a you real know. thing. That's a real thing. That's really that's freaking terrifying. <laughs> Correct. Correct, <laughs> sir. So again, you know, technology makes a lot of things possible in terms of sex workers' ability to, you know, connect to clients, to connect to one another. But it also makes it possible for state actors, right, and and bad actors to yeah. uh, to track us, um, to surveil us, and and because of the long history of stigma, shame, and criminalization, to be a known sex worker can be a very dangerous thing. Interesting. I didn't mm -hmm. know. I uh, I used to have a I used to have a place in Costa Rica, and I would travel to Costa Rica a lot. Mm -hmm. And I knew of um, particularly women, Costa Rican women that were that had visas that were allowed to travel into the United States that would frequently get stopped at yep. 
ports of entry and like harassed by yep. uh, border agents for, you know, p- potentially coming into the country for prostitution purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a, yeah, yeah that's a real it thing. It seems like a kind of a form of harassment almost, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a line, you know, from my show and, and something that I've, uh, you know, really encountered over and over again in, in studying this is, you know, if you are a woman traveling alone, there will yeah. be questions and there may be restrictions. The mm-hmm. year that uh, Donald Trump signed sesta FOSTA into law, a very nice restaurant on the Upper East Side of Manhattan stopped serving single women at their bar because they didn't want whores in their restaurant. So if you were a woman who didn't have a date um, or were not with a group and you walked into the bar, you were not allowed to sit there they would seat you at a table um and not allow you to talk to other people like a like a child that's really crazy what do you think could be done better like in a perfect world what's i mean i know i i get there's a lot of things but like can you yeah i think like some things that can be done better yeah yeah the fundamental thing that we still have to work on um as a culture and and as a community is being able to tell the difference between negotiated consent and rape, right? We need to believe victims when they report violence committed against us. And we also need to believe people when they say that they are engaging in consensual sex work. And so that conflation, I think, has blinded us to a lot of actual abuse. And it has also compelled us to hunt the people we say that we're trying to help. Hmm. Interesting. What are you working on these days besides your show and your comedy? And <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So I run this little nonprofit uh, called Old Pros where we um, fund all kinds of, of sex worker art. We have an excellent newsletter that's a, a roundup of sex worker rights related news written by, um, you know, the very funny team that we've cultivated at Old Pros. So if you like your sex worker rights related news to come with a, uh, punchlines and a little pith, then old pros is for you. Uh, I went through your team. You have a pretty good team. You have a team of people that you work with. I do. Yeah. I'm very, very proud of the team that we've built. So my, I mean, my right hand and the, the, you know, woman who really makes uh, all, all of the things possible is Leah Moon. She's our graphic designer. She's, you know, our, our CTO and COO effectively. Um, But she brings a lot of organizational prowess and technological ability that I, uh, I do not have. Um, I, I am the charisma machine. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm. I'm. I can put the words together good, but if you would like them to appear on the internet within the right font, that is a that's a Leah job. <laughs> so um, she does all all of our design. Makes sure that the the back end of the the various um, services and plugins that we use. She's also um, our liaison with our our fiscal sponsor and helps us put together a lot of our um, donor materials, right? Annual reports, uh, proposals, etc. Um, Marie Cecile Anderson is our very talented managing producer. So she uh, produces the Old Pros Show in addition to the Oldest Profession podcast, um, and really sort of makes uh, our our content machine run very smoothly. And then we have um, Irene Marrow, who is a, another sex worker stand-up comic. Uh, she writes our newsletter, a lot of our social media content, um, does a lot of our Instagram reels, and hosts the Old Pro Show, which nice. is a variety show that we uh, we host here in the city, um, yeah. where we provide a platform to sex worker performance artists of all kinds. You've been doing your podcast yeah. for a while. 
I have. We're going into season five this yeah, year, which is that. pretty, pretty exciting. Yeah. 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 Every every episode we do um, a deep dive on a different sex worker from history. And we've uh, we work very hard to make uh, to make those podcasts a resource. Right. With annotated bibliographies and showing our work and, and our research. Um, and so we're we're very proud of the, the library that we've built. Any words of wisdom for a newer, newish podcaster out there? Who <laughs> might- <laughs> I, you're doing great. You've um, I've listened back on on many of your episodes. Your you. Uh, you know great great interviews. Great. Um, I love the the deep dive into different subcultures. And you're such a like you know affable, curious, non judgmental host. It's um, it's a delight to listen to you um, interview other people. And this has been a delight. Thank you so yeah, much it's been for, awesome for to inviting me. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed talking to you and learning um, more about your whole perspective. And uh, yeah, thank you're, you. You're, yeah, yeah, you're, very, view, you're right? a very smart, <laughs> smart person, which I, I love talking to smart people. <laughs> you just know your <laughs> stuff, you know, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> they're lucky you didn't become a lawyer that's a true thing (laughs) yeah yeah i think so too i i I don't think that i that wouldn't be my best life i don't think you're a lady that comes armed with the facts (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's true i come prepared i think that's again uh you know being um again a a weird a weird only child right and uh do you see yourself like oh i guess you're probably more liberal leaning i would say huh yeah, I think I mean the way that I, uh, you know, we we talk to people from all kinds of ideological perspectives. Sure. Um, yeah. I often tell people like my mom's a liberal, my dad's a conservative, I'm a right. comedian. But <laughs> you're but you're right. I I lean liberal. Um, I vote, yeah. you know, team yeah. blue. And I'm not trying. Yeah, and I'm not trying to put yeah, you yeah, in yeah. A category like that or get into politics really at all. Mm. No, it I'm no, it's fine. But, myself, you know, when it comes yeah, to- th- but this is an issue that I think you know does appeal to principled libertarians and yeah. you know progressives that are actually interested in reducing harm. And the you know the errors here, I think, are something that can be shared from a bipartisan perspective, right? Democrats and Republicans voted for SESTA-FOSTA and also every other dumb anti-trafficking law that came before it. This is a bipartisan problem with hopefully a bipartisan solution. Something that popped into my head that just kind of made me feel like this is a question. This is, this might be a rabbit hole. I don't even know if I want to go into, but like, what about like, you know, so most of the people that are going to indulge in sex work are going to be men looking at for women, I would say. Right. I mean, am I wrong? I, you're not, you're not wrong, but it's not. It's not as simple as you would assume, right? So yeah. Yeah, again, yeah, yeah. It, it's hard to get good numbers about a criminalized class of people. Right, but right, the, right. of the studies that have been done, you can sort of say that providers, it's about like 30% male providers, 70% women providers, including right. trans women, but 90% male buyers, right? Of both- right you know, cis male uh, sexual service providers and, uh, you know, women uh, service providers. When you start talking about uh, the youth, right, people under the age of 18, you get closer to a 50-50 split because the reason that young people are engaging in this work 
is to have their survival needs met. These are often runaways, people who are trying to escape from an abusive situation. And that unfortunately does not discriminate based on gender. So you see both boys and girls engaging in survival sex work. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously and nobody's, so yeah. nobody's condoning like child. Nobody is condoning. Right, absolutely not. Child sex work. Right. Correct. Correct. Uh, my thought was actually from the perspective of like a married woman, I was thinking like, you know, like mm. married women, right? Like it just popped so, in my head. I thought I would ask you before we get off, you mm. know, like, I don't want sex uh, to be legal because my husband might go cheat on me with a prostitute. Yeah. So there, um, yeah. So, so, I mean, are you talking about married women as, as clients? Because as, <laughs> that's something that I can, that's something that I can actually speak to. There are, uh, there are male providers out there that provide services to. No, no, no. I was thinking women. about married women being opposed to the legalization of oh, because their husbands would maybe, sure. you know, sure. Right. Totally. Yeah. That's, I, I, I do think that's interesting. Um, I don't know I why will I say, this is something that I was thinking about. Yeah. Like it's interesting that you say that. Getting, getting mainstream. Kind of maybe, uh, I, I don't know from, from my perspective and I, I certainly don't speak for all my women on this, but I yeah. think that like I, uh, would feel differently about my husband seeking the services of a sex worker than uh, beginning an affair with another person, right? I think one of those is an existential threat to the relationship and the other one isn't, right? Like I'm not cheating on my husband when I get a massage. Right, Um, good point. And so I think that, you know, the uh, paying a sex worker for services, um, you know, I think, I don't think of that as cheating, right? And again, I have the experience of being a sex worker. Um, I think it's always important to engage in harm reduction, right? Like venereal disease is real. Um, Excuse me, STIs. That's that's a throwback. No one calls it that anymore. (laughs) Um, VD, that's uh, not from my day. Sure, yeah, 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 from the scary World War II posters. (laughs) Um, But but I also wanted to say, because you brought it up and it flew into my head, uh, that there are male sex workers out there that see female clients like that's a that's a real thing that is happening more and more Uh, as women have more and more purchasing power right it's always been kind of a thing but it's becoming more of a thing it's not like a figment (laughs) of people's imagination and speaking from my own experience i was shocked as a sex worker myself somebody who has you know engaged in all kinds of recreational sex. Mm -hmm. The first time I went to a strip club for women in Montreal, Canada, I spent $400 in 30 minutes. I like somebody blew on my clit and I was helpless. It was like, I felt just as susceptible to like whatever that thing is that I myself have inspired in, in my male clients. So yeah. Um, erotic energy is, uh, (laughs) something that knows no no gendered bounds <laughs> <laughs> do you one more little bit of a thing that i was gonna that i wanted to ask you about was like porn addiction you hear about porn addiction a lot um is that a sure i i think it's a i think it's another moral panic right yeah, you know it yeah. in the 19th century most doctors had convinced most people that like masturbation was a form of self-harm and would lead to <laughs> cancer like there's no evidence to suggest that that's a thing. I mean, 
you can develop unhealthy patterns with anything, television, food, exercise, sleep. Um, And I certainly think that masturbation or or sexual behavior is no exception to that, right? Um, You can absolutely develop unhealthy habits around it. Do I think it's a new medical emergency? Absolutely not. I do. I think that any effort to criminalize or suppress this thing will lead to bad outcomes. Yes, that is that is my position. I think yeah. that we should stop trying to criminalize porn and do a better job responding to the uh, reported sexual predators that are actually in our communities. I think that's yeah. uh, that's a great place to stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really love everything you said. If somebody's looking Thank for you. you and they want to find out more about you, your show, your comedy, sure. your website, what's the best place yeah. to look for you? The best place to find more information is oldprosonline.org. Okay. And the best way to keep up with everything that we're doing is by joining our email list. You can also follow us across social media at Old Pros Online. Okay. And yeah, when we come to your town, come see us live. I definitely am going to come see you either in New York or I'll see you here in Charleston. I'm definitely going to come Fantastic. see you because uh, you're an interesting young lady and I've enjoyed very much talking to you. I'm going to post a link to your stuff in the show notes. and Much appreciated. They can find you there. Thank you so much for coming on and thank you for your time on Memorial Day. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening to another episode of Subculture with my guest today, Caitlin Bailey. Caitlin, thank you so much. That was an awesome show. I'm going to drop all your socials in the show notes below. If you enjoy listening to Subculture, please give me a rating in your podcast platform of choice. Five stars would be great. We'll be here next week with another episode of Subculture. Thanks for listening. Thank you.